Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. Worship, where you can worship in a context that is more to your level and to your understanding. The rest of you can open your Bibles to Nehemiah chapter 10. Nehemiah chapter 10. In the summer of 1776, 56 men put their signatures to one of the most important documents in the history of our nation. You know what it is, the Declaration of Independence. John Hancock from Massachusetts, who was the president of the Continental Congress, does anybody know how large his signature is? Almost, very, somebody said, almost five inches long. His signature is the most, most famous signature. Now, other founding fathers that were famous have added their name to the Declaration of Independence. People like Thomas Jefferson and Benjamin Franklin and, and John Adams. And there's this little legend that happened after they signed the Declaration of Independence. We really don't know if it's true, but, but John Hancock turned to the Continental Congress and, and after they had signed their names, he said, now we must all hang together. And Benjamin Franklin reportedly said, we most surely all will hang together because one day we may have to all hang separately. You get it? Signing their name to the Declaration of Independence was a radical move from these men. It wasn't just signing their name to a piece of paper. What they were doing was they were signing something that was symbolic of the very fabric of our nation. Freedom from tyranny. What they were about to sign would would radically catapult our nation into something that the world had never seen. So what's the importance of signing your name to a document? Whether you're signing all those papers when you buy a house or you sign the credit card slip after you've gone out to eat and hopefully you've given your waitress or waiter a good tip, as a Christian, by the way, or whether you're signing your name at the bottom of a love letter, is there power in signing your name? Throughout the history of the church, there have been many famous Christians who have written down commitments in writing. I don't know how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand, but, but some of you may be in the back of your Bible or on certain pages in your Bible and those times where God has gripped you, maybe during a worship service or maybe during a camp or, or maybe during some important period in your life, you've written something down in your Bible, a commitment, and you wrote it down because you wanted it to stick. Many of you are familiar with Jonathan Edwards, that great theologian and preacher that God used to launch the second great awakening in our nation. By secular historians, they say Jonathan Edwards was probably the most brilliant mind that America has ever produced. But as an 18-year-old young man, as he was going off to college, he began to write what he would call the resolutions. And over a period of two years, he wrote 70 of these resolutions. And I'm not going to read all 70 to you this morning, but it's interesting what he, what he said in these resolutions. He, he writes at the beginning of this, he says, Being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, 
I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And then there's a little note in his resolutions to remember to read these once a week. So let me give you just three of these resolutions. The very first one I think is the most important of Jonathan Edwards' resolutions. Resolved that I will do whatsoever I think to be most to God's glory. Resolved never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. Resolved to ask every night as I'm going to bed whether I've been negligent, what sin I've committed, when I've denied myself, and at the end of every month, and and at the end of every week, and at the end of every year. Now, some people thought Jonathan Edwards was a little neurotic. He went a little too far, writing these 70 resolutions down, and maybe he was a little obsessed. But there's one thing you can say about Jonathan Edwards if you read history, and you read his sermons, and you look at his life. He was a man who was passionate about Jesus Christ. And these resolutions meant something to him. So let me ask you a question. Is there power in writing something down? And is there power in making a resolution? Now, I'm not talking about a New Year's resolution. Our culture understands New Year's resolutions. What I'm talking about is those times in your life where God comes to you and God interrupts you and God confronts you with his word and you are broken and you are contrite and you begin to come under the authority of his word. And in those moments, God moves you to make a specific commitment and writing because you've been so gripped by God's power in your life and you're making a renewed commitment to obedience to obedience over the past few weeks we've been exploring this topic of revival from Nehemiah and if you remember we're looking at God interrupting the nation of Israel after the rebuilding of the wall and so in Nehemiah chapter 8 we saw the first overarching mark of revival In Nehemiah chapter 8, it was simply this. There was a recovery of the authority of God's word. The power, the authority, the hunger for God's word. And then the second mark was, once they had come under the authority of this word, they began to be broken. They were contrite. They began to mourn over their sin. They began to, to repent. And so here's the third mark of revival that we will see this morning. And it emerges from chapter 10. It's simply this. Revival is truly authentic. It's truly authentic when there is a renewed commitment to be radically distinct from the world. A commitment to be radically distinct from the world around us. I want you to notice something about revival. As I've been studying this, I've noticed three major things that have happened in in each chapter. In chapter 8, what was the big issue? They gathered for a worship service. It was a worship service where the preaching of God's word was powerful. Okay, and then in chapter 9, it moved to a solemn assembly. They're they're broken, they're in sackcloth and ashes, and they begin to confess their sin. And then we move to chapter 10, and there's something different. It's not a worship service, it's it's not a solemn assembly, it's what we call a covenant renewal ceremony. The people bind their names on a written document and sign it as a way to renew their covenant to God and their obedience to God. It is a covenant renewal ceremony ceremony let's look at the end of chapter 9 
I left us hanging last week because I, I really think in the original Hebrew text, uh, there's no chapter divisions, but I think verse 38 really leads us into chapter 10. So let's go back and look at chapter 9, verse 38. This is on the heels of last week where they stood for a quarter of the hour, a quarter of the day, and they made confession to the Lord for His mercy in the midst of their rebellion. Remember last week, we've been rebellious, we've been rebellious, we've been rebellious. You've been merciful, you've been merciful, you've been merciful. So look at verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm commitment in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. And then you go into chapter 10, verse 1. On the seals are the names of Nehemiah the governor. It's no surprise, he's first. And then a list of all of the leaders of the nation of Israel. They say, we make a firm covenant. We are cutting a covenant. We are binding ourselves in writing to a covenant renewal ceremony where we are making some renewed commitments to continue our obedience, to continue our repentance. And so what we're going to see in chapter 10, it goes like this, okay? Let me kind of give you just a a visual outline of, of chapter 10. They make one huge overarching commitment. That's how chapter 10 starts. They make this big, huge, sweeping commitment, and then to help them stay fixed on that commitment, they make three very specific commitments, three very concrete commitments. And let me just tell you, I've struggled all week with preaching this message because I will give you a Surgeon General warning this morning. Your toes will be stepped on. You ready? My toes have been stepped on all week. So I'm ready to start stepping on some toes. No, I'm not ready to do that. The Scripture does that. We're getting very specific this morning. You may think, Pastor Sean, you're moving from preaching to meddling. And don't think of me as meddling. Think of the text exposing you and me like a double-edged sword laying us bare as we look at these things that hit us right between the eyes. So here's the first big overarching commitment that we see in Nehemiah chapter 10. We're going to start in verse 28 and look at verse 28 and 29. Here's the first big issue. It was a commitment to obey the totality of God's word. The totality of it. Let's look at Nehemiah chapter 10, verses 28 and 29. After Nehemiah and all the leaders had signed it, we we pick up in verse 28. The rest of the people, the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the lands to the law of God, their wives, their sons, their daughters, all who have knowledge and understanding, that, that means youth and, and, and young children that are able to understand, join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law that was given by Moses, the servant of God, and to observe and do all the commandments of the Lord, our Lord, and his rules and his statutes. It was a commitment to obey the totality of God's word. And notice what they do. They separate themselves from the nations around them. They separate themselves. And that's key in revival. Separation and distinction, but not isolation. There's a fine line there. Do do we separate ourselves so much from the world that we have no influence on the world? Now, in the nation of Israel, they were to build a wall to keep the world out. 
As New Testament Christians, are we to build walls and are we to build fortresses to keep people out? Or is our mission to go out from the walls and into a world? But yet at the same time, as we're called to go into a world, we need to be distinct from that world. That's a tension that we feel all the time as Christians, to be distinct, to be separate, but not to be isolated. Listen to what Jesus said. I think Jesus gives us the wisdom on how to do this. In John 17, 15 through 18, Jesus is praying to the Father, and listen to what he prays. He says, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. So we see very clearly that Jesus says, I'm sending you as as my disciples into the world. You are to go into the world. You are to testify about me to the world. You are to share the gospel. You are to put my glory on display. You are to declare my gospel. You are to disciple for my great commission. But you are to be sanctified. You are to be distinctly separate. Sanctify them by by the truth. Your word is truth. We are to be in the world, but not of the world. We can't escape the world but we have to be radically different from the world. We call this holiness. What does Paul say in 2 Corinthians 7, verse 1? Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So if God is truly going to bring revival to our hearts, if God is going to bring revival to our church, if God's going to bring revival to our land, it must start with Christians who are serious about pursuing holiness. Seriously, aggressively wanting to walk in righteousness, to walk distinctly separate from this world, to be radically distinct. And notice how passionately they are involved in this. It says here in the scriptures in verse 29, they join into a curse. They sign their name on the dotted line saying, we are are binding ourselves in an oath and a curse if we don't do this. Now, we need to understand something here. They're not making a new resolution. As a matter of fact, back in chapter 9, we see how they had broken the original commandment, the original covenant. They are renewing what they had promised to obey back at Mount Sinai and how they had broken that. So this is a covenant renewal. This is a renewed commitment to obedience. We failed in obeying you, so we're going to renew this. But most importantly, how do they do that? We commit to obey the totality of God's word. Notice what they say there in verse 29. We join with their brothers, their nobles, and enter into a curse and an oath to walk in God's law, to walk in the law that was given by Moses. That talks about the scriptures. To observe and do what? The commandments that we like? The ones that are convenient? The ones we get to pick and choose? The ones that are politically correct? The ones that are culturally irrelevant? What does it say? All. All the commandments of our Lord and his rules. And his statutes. You see, in times of revival, there's total obedience. 
There's no picking and choosing what we want to, what we want to, we don't, we don't negotiate with God and say, this is the part of the Bible I like, I think I'll do that. No, it's total obedience. And that's why God commanded them when they were to go into the land in the first place. Back in Deuteronomy, when they were on the edge of the promised land, and God says, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you entrance into the land of Canaan. Notice what God said to them through Moses in Deuteronomy 6, 24 through 25. The Lord commanded us to do all these statutes, to fear the Lord our God. For our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all this commandment before the Lord our God, as he has commanded it. So in times of revival, in times when God comes and and, and divinely interrupts the people, there's no negotiating. There's no haggling. It's all or nothing when it comes to God. It's, it's total obedience. It's not half obedience. It's not lukewarmness. It's not picking and choosing. It's God's word is our authority, and I'm going to obey it. All of it. All of it. Even the parts we don't quite understand. Now, at this point, Israel could have said, okay, that's our commitment. We've made this huge, big, overarching commitment to obey the totality of God's word, but they, they make it more specific because sometimes we need specifics. Sometimes we can work in generalities. Okay, we're going to obey all of God's word. Well, the Israelites said, let's make it specific in three very specific areas. Now, these three areas were the areas that the Israelites had purposely and rebelliously defied God. And let me just say right up front, these are the three areas that every American Christian struggles with in our culture today. So you want to talk about being practical. The Israelites struggled with it. We struggle with it. Let's see what these three specific commitments are. Here's the first. It was a commitment to protect, to protect the spiritual integrity of their identity as God's people, especially in the area of sexual and marital relationships. Okay, guys, we're talking about sex and marriage here. Think that's a struggle in our culture? If you're not nodding your head, you, you're living under a, a bushel somewhere. They make a commitment to protect the integrity of God's people, especially in the area of sexual and marital relationships. Now let's look at chapter 10, verse 30. Verse, verse 30. We will not give our daughters to the peoples of the land or take their daughters for our sons. Now what in the world is going on here? What are they saying? Basically, they're making a commitment in writing saying, we're not going to intermarry with pagan Gentiles. We are the covenant people of God, and to protect the covenant identity of who we are as God's people, we're not going to intermarry. Now, this wasn't anything to have to do with racism. It didn't have anything to do with anything like that. It was, it was just that God said religiously, spiritually, ethically, for the purity of, of the nation of Israel, don't intermarry because it's going to be your downfall. God had prescribed to them back in Exodus chapter 34. Listen to what God said back in Exodus 34, 14 through 16. You shall worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. 
lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and when they whore after their gods and sacrifice to their gods, and you're invited, you eat of his sacrifice, and you take of their daughters for your sons, and their daughters whore after their gods, and make your sons whore after their gods. And you have to look at the scripture and say, that's a pretty strong language, whoring after other gods. That's how God describes idolatry. It is spiritual adultery against him. And so the Israelites were strictly forbidden from marrying people outside of Israel. It was their downfall. They had to protect their spiritual integrity. Do you remember King Solomon, David's son? Great king up to the last days of his life. We think of Solomon, he built the temple. Solomon was a man of wisdom. But do you know how Solomon ended his days? And do you know what happened in the nation of Israel as a result of Solomon? 1 Kings chapter 11. Listen to the downfall of King Solomon. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you. For surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 700 wives who were princesses and 300 concubines. And his wives turned away his heart. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned away his heart after other gods. And his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, as was the heart of David his father. Do you know what happened to Israel as a result of Solomon? Split into two nations. Civil war, north and south, and it went downhill from there eventually until the nation was kicked out in the 70 years of exile because one king said, I'm going to whore after other women when God told me not to. Don't intermarry is what the Israelites were told. Now, let's make this very practical for us today. 2 Corinthians 6.14 do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? I want you to think about influence for a moment. Who most influences you? Those to whom you are most intimately involved influence you the most. So who you hang with? who you spend most of your time with, who you are intimate with, they shape your worldview. They shape your desires. They shape your heart. They shape your choices. They shape your behavior. They shape the way you serve God. And what Paul is saying is that can two who are not united in Christ, can they coexist? Can they be equally yoked? And Paul says no. Now, I, I understand situations. And so, for example, let's say that, that, that both of you were non-believers before you got married. You went into your marriage covenant as non-believers, and then later on down the road, one of you gets saved, and then you become unequally yoked because in God's grace, he saved you. I understand that. And that's a hard place to be for one of the spouses to be married to one who's not a spouse. And that happens. But what I'm more concerned about is on the front end. I cannot tell you how many times I have seen this happen 
where those young people who are professing Christians, who say they love Jesus, who have a relationship with Jesus, will defiantly and rebelliously go after a person who is not a Christian and marry them, knowing that they're going into a relationship being unequally yoked. They go into it knowing that they're not unequally yoked. And let me ask you, and you've observed this, does the Christian end up influencing the other, or is it the other way around? I don't have empirical evidence, but let me just say this. If you are a college student or a young adult, and you come into my office and you say, Pastor Sean, I want to get married. I love this person. I want to get married. I want to get married in Emmanuel. Please marry us. And you are unequally yoked, and you're living with that person, and you're having sex before marriage, you know what my answer is going to be. It ain't going to happen. It ain't going to happen. Now, will I counsel you? Will I work with you? Will I love you? Yes. But young people, let me just say this loud and clear. You need to make the commitment now that you're not going to be unequally yoked. Because hormones rage and your heart loves a person. And if you give your heart to a person that's not a believer, that's a dangerous thing to happen. So make the commitment now. Resolve in your heart now to say, I'm going to look for a godly, a godly spouse. And I'm going to add the first question on that first date. I'm going to sit them down and I'm going to ask them, tell me about your relationship with Jesus. And if they can't answer that satisfactorily, then you need to really think hard about what you're going to do. Don't be afraid to ask those questions over a coffee or at a movie. And you're goo-goo looking at each other's eyes. I love this person. Tell me about Jesus in your life. If they can't give you a solid answer, then you need to really seriously consider what you're doing. Okay. In times of revival, marriages get restored. The sanctity of marriage is preserved. There's purity in wise decisions among young people. Now, here's the thing we're struggling with in our culture. Here's the thing that we're struggling with big time in our culture. For 6,000 years, God has defined marriage as between one man and one woman for a lifetime. And all of a sudden, culture wants to kind of change the definition of marriage. And if you speak out against so-called gay marriage, then for the first time in history, you're labeled as a bigot. You're labeled as a hate monger. You're labeled as someone who, 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 who is just like a Nazi because you would dare say marriage is defined by God. Let me just give you, uh, give you a newsflash. Culture, politics, the government, the Supreme Court, the Congress, or the President of the United States has no right to mess with marriage. God alone defines it. And regardless of what our culture says, marriage is between one man and one woman. And in times of revival, and in how we need revival, there's a brokenness over immorality. There's a brokenness over sexual immorality. There's a brokenness. Marriages are restored. Listen to what Jesus said about marriage. If you don't think Jesus was serious about it, listen to Matthew 19, 4 through 6. He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And he said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. And this is the important part. What therefore God has joined 
together, let not man separate. God joins people together in marriage. God defines marriage. God institutes marriage. God created marriage, and we have no right to mess with it. And I'm very, very concerned about this younger generation that's growing up in our culture. They're growing up in a culture of where it's, it's the tolerant culture. But here's the scary thing about the tolerant culture. Every viewpoint is tolerated except for somebody that says, I believe the Bible and Jesus is the only way of salvation. We'll tolerate everything but that. It's the intolerance of tolerance. And we need to pray desperately for this next generation. Because they're swimming in it. They're swimming in the cesspool of secular humanism and ungodliness. And we need a revival. I don't know of any way that this nation will be saved. Save revival. So number one, We want to protect the sanctity of our identity as God's people, especially in the area of marriage and sexual relationships. Okay, Sean, you're you're meddling. Let's keep moving in to the next one. Let's look at verse 31. Here's the second commitment. And if the peoples of the land bring in goods or any grain on the Sabbath day to sell... We will not buy from them on the Sabbath or on a holy day, and we will forgo the crops of the seventh year and the exaction of every debt. Here's the second thing. There's a renewed commitment to honor the Lord with our time. Sex, marriage. Ooh, we're hitting pretty home now. We talk about time. I mean, you're going to talk about how I use my time. It's my time. How, how, do, how do I use my time? Now, here's what's going on. In that culture, nobody knew the Sabbath. I mean, the the pagan nations would come and and knock on the door of the wall and say, hey, we're here on Saturday. Let's buy and trade. Let's sell. And and the the people were going out there and buying and selling on the Sabbath. Now, you may think, that's not a big deal. Who who cares if we go to a restaurant on Sunday or who cares if we we do business on, on Sunday? That I'm not going to make an equation there, but what I'm saying is for the Old Testament Israelites to do business on on the Sabbath was to break the fourth commandment. Because God said, you shall honor the Sabbath and it shall be a holy day. And so for them, it was breaking one of the Ten Commandments. But but think about what the Sabbath is. I'm not here to argue uh, whether Sabbath is is on Saturday or whether it's on Sunday. We'll talk about that in just a moment. But what is the Sabbath picture? Six days of work and then rest. Do you realize that there is a Sabbath rest today? And it's not a day of the week. It's Jesus. He's the Sabbath. What is our salvation? We don't work for our salvation. What do we do? We rest in what Christ has done in his finished work. He's the Sabbath. And so for the Old Testament Israelites, when they were were breaking the Sabbath, they didn't know it, but they were breaking the picture of what Jesus was for us in our salvation that we would no longer have to work for our salvation, but that we could enter into the rest of Jesus Christ as our Sabbath rest. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty eight through 29. And he's talking about salvation here. He's not talking to just people who are stressed out and people who are, who are tired. Yes, he's talking about salvation here. Matthew eleven twenty eight 28 through 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest, eternal rest. 
Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. That's Sabbath. Find rest in Jesus for your souls. He's the Sabbath. And then the writer of Hebrews tells us in chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did. So this whole idea of Sabbath is to picture for the Old Testament Israelites a day that would be coming where they would no longer have to do the sacrificial system. We, would, we wouldn't work for our salvation. We'd rest in the finished work of Christ as he is our Sabbath. Now, here's the principle, though. God wants our time. God wants our best. And God has built a rhythm into the human heart. He built it in at creation. What's the rhythm? You work six days and you rest. Now, for me, today's not a Sabbath. I'm working. Saturday, the real Sabbath, no, I'm just joking, is my Sabbath. But some of you are workaholics, and you don't take a day off. Some of you work like dogs, and you don't understand Sabbath rest. And here's the, here's the issue. On Sundays, how many of us cram so much into our days on Sundays, going here, going there, doing this, doing that, 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 that God gets left out? We'll make a little time for church, but really what's more important is let's go to the restaurant, let's go do this, let's go do that, and let me step on some toes here, okay? Are you ready? No. (laughs) I will probably get emails, I will probably get letters, and you will probably not like what I have to say, so just deal with it, okay? We have made sports an idol in this country. And there are a lot of people who are sacrificing their children on the idol of sports and taking them to games and tournaments on Sunday mornings instead of having them in the house on the Lord's Day. And what are we teaching our children? That sports is more important than God. Now, I know your response. That's the only chance they're going to have to play and and they're going to mess up their, they're going to ruin their athletic career. Well, as gracious as I can say it, would you rather honor God and have him bless your life Or would you rather dishonor God? Now, I don't want to be legalistic about this. I don't want to minister guilt. But I just want to say this. Do we honor God with our time on the Lord's day, Sunday? Think about companies like Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby. They don't open for business on Sundays. Are they struggling? Now, Hobby Lobby's in court, but are they struggling financially? No, God has blessed those companies for making a stand about the Lord's Day, and they're raking in the dough because God is blessing them. So in times of revival, the Lord's Day, Sunday morning, is honored. Listen to what Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, making the best use of the time. Why? Because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. All I'm saying is that we need to give God our first fruits of our time. He deserves our best. Okay, Sean, you've talked about sex and marriage. You've talked about time. Where are you going to go next? Well, here's the third one. This is where it really hurts. Are you ready? The third thing is a renewed commitment to support the ministries of the church through financial stewardship. Yes, I'm talking about giving, tithing, finances, stewardship, because the Bible talks about it right here. Let's keep reading. We also take on ourselves the obligation to give yearly a third part of a shekel for the service of the house of our God. For the showbread, the regular grain offering, the regular burnt offering, the Sabbaths, the new moons, the appointed feasts, the holy things, and the sin offerings to make atonement for Israel and for all the work of the house of our God. 
We, the priests, the Levites, and the people have likewise cast lots for the wood offering to bring it into the house of our God. According to our Father's house, is at times appointed year by year to burn on the altar of the Lord our God, as is written in the law. We <clears throat> obligate ourselves to bring the first fruits of our ground and the first fruits of all our fruit of every tree year by year to the house of the Lord. Also to bring to the house of our God, to the priest who minister in the house of our God, the first of our sons and of our cattle, as it is written in the law, the firstborn of our herds and of our flocks, and to bring the first of our dough and our contributions, the fruit of every tree the wine, the oil to the priest, to the chambers of the house of our God, and to bring to the Levites the tithe from our ground. For it is the Levites who collect the tithes in all the towns where we labor. And the priest, the son of Aaron, shall be with the Levites when the Levites receive the tithes. And the Levites shall bring up the tithe to the tithe to the house of our God, to the chamber of the storehouse. For the people of Israel and the sons of Levi shall bring the contribution of grain, wine, and oil to the chamber where the vessels of the sanctuary are, as well as the priests who minister and the gatekeepers and the singers. We will not neglect the house of our God. Now, I'm not going to get into all these different um, types of, of, of offerings and tithes and, and all that kind of stuff because it gets mind-boggling, but what I want you to notice is nine times they say, we will not neglect the house of our God. For them, it was the, the operation of the temple worship. They had rebuilt the temple, they had rebuilt the wall, and the functioning of the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the ministry, if you will, of the church needed to be funded through the generous giving of tithes and offerings. And notice what they said. They said, we will obligate ourselves to this. Now here's what was going on that was ungodly. The Persian king was financing the work of the temple. That's ungodly. That would be like President Obama bringing money to to fund the budget of this church as opposed to this church stepping up the plate and saying, we're going to fund the ministries of this church. These people had neglected the funding of the ministries of the temple and allowed an outside person to come in and do it, and they realized that was ungodly, and they decided, we're going to step up to the plate, and we are going to give financially to the ministries of the church. And in times of revival... God's people are not stingy, God's people are not greedy, God's people are joyful, and they give of their tithes and offerings sacrificially. And as as the great pastor Vody Bauckham says, if you can't say amen, you ought to say ouch. Okay, how do you really know that revival has hit the people? Look at the specifics. Are marriages being preserved? Is there sexual purity? Are people honoring the Lord with their time and are people honoring the Lord with their finances? Look at those indicators and you will see if revival is really hit. Now, what I find interesting is nobody complained. You see anybody complaining here? You're asking me to give? I don't want to do that. Nobody here gets upset. Nobody complained. Nobody refused. Nobody got up in arms. Why? What had they just experienced? Let's look at the flow. Back in chapter 8, they were hit with the word of God and they realized that this is the authority. And they realized they were disobedient. In chapter 9, they stood for a quarter of the day and they confessed their sin. They'd been moved, they'd been broken. And so what's the natural outflow of coming under the authority of the word and being broken? They, they, they have a covenant renewal ceremony and said, we're going to get serious about making some serious commitments. We're going to get serious about obedience. We're not just going to give lip service to it. We're not just going to have a happy little cry fest and then just go on and live our lives the way we want to, which as a youth pastor I've seen numerous times. You cry at the altar and everybody weeps and then you go out and live the way you want to live. Now they say we are going to make some specific radical commitments. Do we as God's people look and act and think and feel 
and behave radically and distinctly different from the world around us, especially when it comes in the areas of marriage, finances, and time management. Do we look any different? That's a hard question to ask. You see, when God wants to bend the church like we saw last week, he confronts us in our idolatry. He confronts us where it hurts. He confronts us where it hurts because he wants to bend us to his will. Okay, at this point, some of you are feeling really beat up. And I don't want you to stay there. I want to give hope in the gospel. Because if all I did this morning was step on toes and beat you up, I would not be a faithful preacher of the gospel. So let's talk about the gospel here for a moment. Some of you here are having struggling marriages. Some of you here are involved in sexual immorality. Some of you here are so busy that you've made everything in your life an idol except for giving time to God. And some of you aren't financially giving and tithing to the church. Am I going to minimize the disobedience and say, oh, it's okay, keep doing what you're doing? No, I'm not going to say that. Those are sins. But let me just say this. Jesus is the only one who can redeem those areas in your life. Jesus can redeem your marriages through the gospel. Jesus can redeem your sexual immorality through the gospel. Jesus can redeem your time through the gospel. And Jesus can redeem your finances through the gospel. So the last thing I want you to hear is, hey, go pick yourself up by your bootstraps and go out there and be a better Christian and try harder. You are going to fail if that's what you hear. And you may be very scared. I'm scared. These these are real commitments. I mean, we're talking about marriage. We're talking about money. We're talking about finances. We're talking about time. We're talking about sexual purity. These are real things. I'm afraid. And I I sympathize with you. And maybe you're not like Jonathan Edwards where you're going to write down 70 resolutions, okay? That may not be the best thing to do. Here's a baby step. Can I just give you one baby step? Make a predetermined commitment in your heart that no matter what this word says, you're going to obey it. I mean, that's very simple. I may not like it. I may not understand it. I may struggle with it. But in my heart of hearts, I'm making a predetermined commitment to obey it because it's God's word. And then once you make that predetermined commitment to obey it, then ask God to give you the power to do it. Do you realize God loves to give power? You know, I'm not asking you to turn over a new leaf. I'm not asking you to make a New Year's resolution. You know what that is? That's not the gospel. That's self-help. You don't need self-help. We have enough self-help gurus out there. What you need is a radical transformation. Let me give you a word of hope. Underline this in your Bibles. Memorize this passage of Scripture. Claim this promise every day. 2 Peter 1.3. I mean, it's going to be on your screen, but... If there's one passage of Scripture that we as Christians need to hear over and over again when we live the Christian life, it is this. His divine power has granted to us what? All things. All things that pertain to life and to godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. Do you realize that God has provided you everything you need? Every resource is at your disposal to live a godly life. All power in the gospel has been given to you through the resurrected life of Jesus Christ. And so the big question as Christians is, what are you waiting for? 
Call upon the name of the Lord to give you the strength to be able to do that, to bend you. Now, one thing we've realized about revival over the past few weeks is can we manipulate it? Can we manufacture it? Can we, can we coerce God to do it? No, the only thing that we can do is we can get on our knees and cry out for God to do something. And we can cry out to God like we looked last week and say, God, bend me. Bend my marriage. Bend my sexual immorality. Bend my time. Bend my finances so that I reflect a life that brings glory to you. That could be the most painful prayer any of us in this room can pray. But if you are serious about following God, and you are serious about revival, and you are serious about God doing a work in your life, there's no other option than to cry out to Jesus and say, give me your power. I need your power. So what I'm going to ask you to do this morning, I'm not going to ask you to stand up and come down here and sign a document. We're not going to have the elders surround you and make sure everybody's signing it. But what I am going to do is this. Sometimes when we're confronted with God's word, there comes times where we need to make public commitments. Public declarations. A movement from out of our seat to maybe solidify it by maybe coming down here as a couple, as a husband and wife, just down here to the front, and, and you grab hands together, at, kneeling before the Lord and saying, Lord, bend our marriage. We need your help. We need your power. And you can do it where you're sitting, but there's, there's just something powerful about, about getting up and coming down and making it, making it stick. Some of you may be struggling with sexual immorality and you may need to come down here and, and, and confess to the Lord. And some of you may, may be disobedient and you're giving and you're tithing. Whatever God calls you to do, sometimes a movement to the front in a public way of showing that you're serious about it, number one, it helps you solidify it. And number two, it's a testimony to others. And so what we're going to do here in just a moment is we're going to pray. And then our praise team's going to come up and lead us in, in singing, All I Have is Christ. And so I would invite you during this time, if, you, if you're just serious about, about needing prayer, serious about power, I'm going to be down here praying if you need prayer. Pastor Andrew will be down here if you need prayer. Our elders will be down here if you need prayer. D don't leave this place today without, without solidly making some renewed commitments to God. So let me ask us to bow our heads this morning. And may the first thought out of your, out of your head, of your heart, as you pray to God, be this. Father God, I commit to obey whatever you say in your word, the totality of it. It's got to start with obeying the totality of God's word. And then in the quietness of this moment, maybe you need to get specific and start confessing sin to the Lord this morning in areas of specific sin, specific rebellion. So spend some time in quiet prayer this morning. For you as a people that are in desperate need of your power, we cannot live this Christian life in our own flesh. 
But how often do we trust in our own devices? We trust in our own ability to pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. We trust in, in our ability to, to somehow manufacture obedience. And it's always going to fail if it's not in the power of the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel looking to the resurrected Christ as our only hope. So, Father, help us to claim the promise from this passage of Scripture that we've been given everything we need. You've given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. May we cry out to you for help in time of need and make some renewed commitments to specific obedience this morning as your people. Father, we love you. And we pray for revival. Lord, we know we don't deserve it. We know that we can't manufacture it. All we can do is get on our knees and cry out for you. So Jesus, we want to know more of you. We want to surrender to you. We want to bow our lives under you. Because all we have is Christ. Christ.